You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a great price for this great car. I don't know. On the southeast of Moscow, near an industrial area, a Russian man haggles with a Central Asian man in a skullcap, while a Georgian talks up a young man in Western-style jeans. I have a few other buyers. I don't know. It's not going to stay long. It is, for all intents and purposes, a used car lot, and it's right in the middle of the Soviet Union, and it's captured by New York Times reporter in 1980. How old is the car? What is the price? These are almost forbidden words in a communist country where speculation is against the rules. And yet it happens. A yellow Shiguli sedan sells for 13000 American 1981 dollars, while a Volga sedan with a new cassette player and radio, a hot item, almost 34000 1981 dollars. It's not quite illegal. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. There's that joke about the fellow who goes to buy a car in the Soviet Union and he goes to the counter and lays down his money and the guy at the counter says, come back in 10 years. And the fellow says, should I come uh, on the morning or in the afternoon? And the man behind the counter says, what does it matter? It's 10 years from now. And the fellow says, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. And this is a joke that Ronald Reagan would tell. So it's, you know, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. You know, and a lot of the jokes could be exaggerated. This one, perhaps not. You know, it would take an awfully long time for a regular family to get a car. But some people with connections or part of a union, some would pay bribes to the government official responsible for getting that car. Your behavior and, let's face it, your blot, your relationships, will also affect how quickly you'd get that official car. Cars were part of the American dream, but... More of a Soviet hope. Just about 1.1 million sold in a country of 260 million. One-eighth of the United States total of cars sold. So it became an important item for prestige purposes to, to let someone know that they've made it. Even if it meant that for most Muscovites would have to get a garage miles from the city because there was no parking in most of the Moscow residences. They weren't set up that way. So if you had the money through some means, going to a lot like this just might work. After all, in 1972, the Soviet Union permitted private sales. In other words, people could sell their cars to one another. It's supposed to be at a regulated price, and the USSR collects 7% of the sale. 
It is forbidden to speculate to make profit up above that could result in confiscation of the car and other punishment. It was quite common to sell the car at the official USSR price or even to perhaps bribe the assessor to get that price far lower than the actual value someone might pay for the car and then simply pay the buyer the above. So, so, so for instance, if the price, official price, was 13,000 rubles, but the seller wouldn't depart with the car until you paid him 20, you just paid him the 7,000 on the side. And the US would, USSR would only get its 7% tax on the 13,000. This trade was most common in Moscow where people had money, and there were lots like this. Cars were not the only thing sold. Houses and flats, dodges, premium food, also pets, all of these things were hustled. I wish you to just live on your salary. That was the worst curse that someone could give someone else in Sovietdom. A curse that would be well known and understood because so many people were making money outside of their own salary. In fact, they had to, either from bribe income, illegal but tolerated tip gratuity type income, selling merchandise stolen from the state, Hultura repair services, or other types of services. It was a whole hidden economy. According to the Second Economy of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe by Stephen Sampson in the Annals of the American Academy in an article in 1987, there were islands of capitalism within all of the communist economies of the 1980s, including the Soviet Union. And depending on where you get the estimates from, there's anywhere from a floor of 10% and a maximum of 50% of the income of people coming from these private sources of the economy. I mean, the floor that I have I, that I, that's believable is studies of Soviet emigres into the United States, which are showing about a 10%. Hey, we're getting about 10% of family income from certain private activities. It could be they worked at a certain industry and got a illegal tip. They drove people around kind of like a Soviet Uber service. Henrik Smith talks about one of the drivers for the Communist Party bigwigs who would spend so much time sitting around waiting for them at various dinners while they're drinking their vodka that he'd run some rides during that time. So depending on how you calculate it, there is an economy that's unknown to anyone existing in the world and if you take just a modest estimate of, say, 25% of the 1980 Soviet GDP, you're getting about 250 to $300 billion, making this economy bigger than Mexico, larger than Brazil, larger than Switzerland's economy at the time, and almost equal to the economy of Canada, an island of capitalism. It was said that Soviet officials tolerated some amount of this private enterprise because it lubricated the standard economy. And according to Sampson's article, there's several ways that this happened. Georgia was replete, for instance, with these factories producing merchandise, say, above quota, or factories that weren't even supposed to be producing anything but were and selling private goods at private markets. It and also areas of Russia had private farms, and private farms were tolerated because without them, it's possible the population of the Soviet Union would not be fed. 
More than that, the official Soviet system, which deprived enterprises of materials, forced the second economy because in order to get all the things you needed to make your standard quota, you'd have to pay extra. Where do you get the funds to pay extra by selling things on the side? And there were fix-it brigades, carpenters, forest clearers that would sell their services to Soviet factories who needed to make their state quota. And we probably didn't get enough into it on the podcast. This was the real Soyuz. Hold back your labor. Take it out of the primary state economy. Put it into the second one. Sell the chocolates out the freight exit of the store. Or put more time into waiting in line for better stuff than you put into your work. This was the real system, which by creating an incentive to avoid legal, underfunded transactions, fostered the world's largest unknown free market enterprise. With freelance workers, vodka dealers, black market millionaires, and cement thieves, they would make the news the few times they were caught. In 1980, 200 employees of the fisheries industry were arrested for smuggling caviar and calling it herring. The head of the fisheries had connections in the Politburo and did not get charged perhaps his friends like caviar. Gasoline was almost expected to be obtained in the black market, almost alcohol as well. I didn't have room in six episodes to talk about so much. Those Soviet westerns, how the Soviets loved them. Loved cowboy movies sometimes called them Easterns as they were filmed in Crimea. And that Soviet film festival where the party officials paid little attention to the winner who made the USSR movie that got the medal, but couldn't wait to see Last Tango in Paris. including a commentator who spoke at rallies about the corrupting Western influence and yet had ten people at his table. I never got to quote that KGB agent who told an American journalist who asked him if it was hard to recruit snitches. Recruit? I had a turnaway informers, people eager to get their boss's job. Sometimes the KGB would short people, just like would happen in the marketplaces. They'd do the snitching, and the KGB would never get them their favor. Many other times, though, they were effective in giving promotions and other favors. I never got to talk about how 60% of the USSR's steel was used for the military, so that buildings were chronically undersupplied, and yet there was a tremendous need for housing those 7% of families with children considered nomenclatura, whose kids were about 40% of the university population, which also meant that their families were not subject to calls for military service. I never talked about that military service much, about how it was desperately to be avoided, that it was a grueling, hazing life to be a soldier in the Soviet army. about the recruit who was sent 
from the suburbs of Moscow because his father thought it was important to serve in the military service. Always a little more important in the blue-collar families than in the intelligentsia nomenclature in the cities. But this fellow's father felt it was important to serve, so he did. He had served. His grandfather had served. He was sent from the Moscow suburbs to the Chinese border, where he and the Chinese soldiers could see each other. That's how close the border was. And it was nerve-wracking. Far from being settled, it was nerve-wracking. We'd stare at each other and try to make sure that each other was on their guard. Couldn't wait to get out. The hazing, the stealing, the harsh treatment from the officers, especially the drunks. The lieutenant colonel, who told a reporter that he was afraid of his subordinate. Why would you be afraid of your subordinate? He's a major, you're a lieutenant colonel. Well, he writes the political reports. He could send me to the sticks, and my wife would leave me. I didn't talk about the market rage, the market culture, about how Many would go to the market prepared to fight. To fight for liquid sausage, for rotten cabbage, for spoiled fish. They feel subhuman, one said, going to the market. But if they do not fight, they do not eat. I didn't get a chance to talk about the protester who held a sign that said, Give me Stalin, but give me bread. I didn't talk about the Soviet Coke product, Baikal. Their own cola, Baikal, which contained herbal elements like eucalyptus and pine. It was designed to counter the Western influence that they so worried about. But Coca-Cola was not the major soda brand in the Soviet Union. It was Pepsi that came first because the Pepsi chairman was good friends and a donor to President Nixon, who allowed his brand first entry into the Soviet Union. So Pepsi had a good presence. In fact, in the late 80s, when the Soviet Union wanted to get rid of some ships, Pepsi bought them, and for a small time had one of the world's largest navies, the Pepsi-Cola Navy. Of course, Pepsi didn't go to war with anyone with it. Mostly, it was sold for metal scrap. These are things that just didn't make the episodes. They didn't fit into the narrative in the right place. I didn't want to take too much time in each episode, so they remained in the notebook. If you watch the show The Americans, you see the dilemma that the Russian characters, who are spies living in America under a different identity, have with their children. You see the dilemma they have with their children. Do they actually let them know that their life is a lie? And that's exposed in the series. I'm not going to spoil everything for you. Now, that's extreme because we're dealing with spies who are actually lying. But all Soviets, to some extent, face this because most knew something was up with the system. The system wasn't working the way they were taught in school, the way it's supposed to work, and all was not as reported. So what are you going to do with your children? Are you going to teach them this? Are you going to teach them to be careful? But then the children might have to deal with this kind of, well, my father is a refusenik. My father's a nonconformist type thing. So in most cases, they did not. They sort of maintained a don't ask, don't tell with their children about the Soviet system. 
Henrik Smith, though, tells the story of a man, this is in his book, The New Russians, who was honest with his children and told them things. And he had a library of contraband Western literature that he shared with his kids. Forbidden books. Solzhenitsyn, Sakharov. But one of his kids, by the time he's even in his early 20s, makes the mistake of borrowing just a novel, The Hunt for Red October, Tom Clancy, and takes it to the office. Now, The Hunt for Red October doesn't cast Russians in a good light. So somebody in his office reported his son to the KGB. He never knew who. And it's 1986. So Hendrick Smith's story here tells you how pervasive the kind of intimidation in, in everyday life still was. It's 1986. The KGB comes to the father's house and does what's called an obisk search from top to bottom, pulling out drawers, looking at the bookcases, looking at everything in the apartment, and they confiscated books and they documented everything that they took. They saw the Western books he had and his videotapes. And they were in real trouble. I mean, the family tried to pull some strings. His father had worked at a significant institute, but they couldn't really get any help. See, once you were searched by the KGB like that, people started to say, well, maybe they're up to something bad. It's 1986. And as Hendrick Smith says, the son was likely to go to Siberia. Father likely to lose his job, maybe do some jail time. But something strange happens. Gorbachev releases Sakharov. And says, actually, he's a great citizen and he's going to help us publicize the reforms. And he becomes eventually a member of the People's Deputy. That's a few years later from these incidents. So the KGB agents are in a weird place right now. And they don't get any response. They're expecting some kind of response. Like, are we going to get arrested? Are we not? And then the KGB investigators say, why don't you write to us and ask us to drop the case? What? Never heard of anything like that, particularly the father, who's very worldly in this world. Never heard of the KGB doing anything like that. The son's like, I'm not going to write anything to these guys. I already feel like I'm being persecuted. And the father convinces them, no, if they say they want you to write and drop the case, what could be the harm in that? You're innocent. They wrote the letter. And nothing happened for weeks. Even under perestroika, things still move slow. But then a phone call came. Father and son should be at their apartment at a certain point. A KGB major came, and all the books that were taken were returned with an apology. A mistake had been made. Well, the son's kind of like, you bet a mistake was made. The father, having lived longer in the Soviet system, is shocked. Can hardly speak. The KGB, not only returning the books, but apologizing? It's a new world. Uh, and I want to make a point because the father that in Hendrick Smith's story is one of the more pro-Gorbachev voices. And I think he brings up a good point. Nobody in the Soviet system had ever changed things like that, at least that he had seen. And he retained a high image of Gorbachev thereafter, even with some of the problems. Oh, but one thing. The KGB returned all his books and all his movies except for two. They kept Pretty Baby, too pornographic and aliens. It was too violent, they said. I didn't get a chance to talk about the former Soviet citizen who, upon leaving the Soviet Union after its fall for the first time, goes to Germany and sees a birch tree and 
He had been told all his life that the birch tree was unique to the Soviet Union. It could only grow in the Soviet Union. And to his shock, there it is in Germany. I didn't get a chance to talk about the Soviet citizen who said this. If you live in progressive Western countries today, you have many attributes of the USSR in your hands. Modern life is rubbish. We don't need all this packaging. I lived in a country that practiced that philosophy 30 years ago. Have you seen people bragging a lot about not owning a car? That was the Soviet Union. Have you contemplated about the environmental cost of aviation? Soviets were reducing that cost every single day. If you have a new acquaintance and you don't know whether he's a friend or an enemy, take him mountain climbing. Take him mountain climbing. Take him mountain climbing. In the Soviet Union, you definitely had a tape, cassette tape, of Vladimir Vysotsky. Here's what the artist Regina Spector, who lived in the USSR as a young woman, uh, family moved to America in 89, said about Vysotsky, still to this day, one of my greatest musical heroes. I think he's one of the most talented and brilliant singers of the last century. Although he died in 1980, and I was born in 1980, I feel like I overlapped with him because he was such a part of my daily life in Russia. We couldn't bring a lot of things. We were very limited in our luggage. Everybody had like one outfit, but we had a ton of Vysotsky cassettes. Sometimes called the Bob Dylan of the Soviet Union, but I think that's reductive. Is it even Samizad? I'm not sure if he qualifies for some reasons, but it's certainly his music. A little mix of gypsy flamenco with American influence and folk. Songs about hard Russian life. He was uh, from a nomenclature family and probably, you know, could have had that kind of life in the institutes, become a engineer or scientist or something like that, but instead became an unsuitable music star. And his music passed along on cassette tapes and played. When we hear cassette tapes, we're probably thinking, and, and if you're Old enough to even remember hearing music on that. We're probably thinking very well-produced cassette tapes. And a lot of times it was not. It, it could have been a very distant voice. Recorded from one of his concerts in a distance, like a bootleg tape. Or just a bad magnetic tape quality. So every Vysotsky tape sounded different. He pulled no punches. And he never sang a Communist Party line. Here's one song that's called The One Who Didn't Shoot. About a soldier facing a firing squad. It's one of his own favorites, and it made him cry sometimes when he performed it. Come on, I did not make it. It drives me hot and cold. 
One morning I was aimed at and shot by a firing squad. My path so odd and wicked could take me down to hell. I know the one who did it, but not supposed to tell. Praise my commander, he almost got me saved. But someone else insisted all the same. No one could help, and that was all my fate. But there was a guy who did not aim. My star was falling rapid much earlier, in fact. I got a German captive, but could not bring him back. So Commissioner Souten, a strange and restless guy, all picked up his pencil and put me on his file. After a while, he pulled it out and showed it, in all his material, whatever he could find. It was all done. I lost my chance to be. But there was this guy, who did not fire. The hand fell down after the stupid order, shoot. My pass to go down under, to leave this world for good. But here, call the doctors, the bastard's still alive. Yet by the book of codes... You cannot shoot him twice. My poor doctor was amazed. He clicked his tongue. So many bullets. And as he had them picked, I was delirious. I was calling for the guy. The guy. The one who did not shoot at me. My wounds. I did not heal them. I licked them like a dog. In hospitals was given. Extreme respect by all. I had so much affection with female nursing staff. You, underfired patient, another shot is up. To the Crimea where my battalion was, I sent glucose. I tried to make it sweet. To make a sweeter living for the bloke, the bloke, the one, who did not shoot at me. So having tea and coffee and sometimes alcohol, my life I have not lost it. I just went on and on. I met my head commander. Now fight, that's what I'm told. How come you're still around? That's not my bloody fault. I was so happy, but by the stump I sat. I blamed my fate, and like a dog I squealed. A German sniper took me to the end. He killed the guy, who did not shoot at me. Solendestein said, Live authentically, honestly, in a speech that he made after he was exiled to his Russian comrades in the Soviet Union. Live honestly. And you have to say that about Vysotsky. There's an honesty in his songs. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And I think about that influence. I think about this mix in this nation where there is to the 1970s and 1980s etched in memory a dread, a fear. You know, in most cases in America, we are hearing from our grandparents about maybe the price of things. A few might have, you know, fought WW2 in the big one. Children were seen and not heard. I was told a lot. I didn't hear from my grandmother about secret prisons and confessions and confiscation and relatives killed by secret police. 
It's only two generations. Sometimes even their parents might be involved in some of this. And you hear that in Vysotsky's songs and lots of other things. That song I brought up before about, you know, if you have an enemy, take him mountain climbing. You know, <laughs> that's how you get the real sense of who a person is. Do not leave him alone. What happens with Vysotsky is kind of odd and, and shows you the odd pathway. Authorities choked off all his access to state-run recording labels, so he wasn't going to get officially published with the type of things that he was writing on the Soviet recording labels, and his poetry could not get published in Soviet journals with the types of things that he was writing. But Vysotsky reportedly had some fans among senior Russian officials who, just like everyone else, were listening to some of the black market music and some of the concerts that were performed. And so they sort of quietly looked out for him a bit. He had access to some perks that most Soviet citizens could only dream of. He got some funding. He got permissions to travel abroad. So he was living in Paris at different times and crisscrossed the world. He tried to get some uh, recognition in the United States. That was pretty limited. He His English was pretty poor. Here's how uh, Regina Spector describes it. He was extremely subversive. He occupied a fascinating place in the culture because he wrote extremely anti-establishment songs. But they're so witty and so entertaining that I think the establishment itself was just so entertained by him that he was in this uncomfortable position. He was also kind of a pet. He was just too good to be eliminated. And stifled. But Spector's comments and the story of Vysotsky just kind of brings up the unique position of artists in the Soviet Union. And this concept that in his book, Alexei Yurchak at Berkeley, Everything Was for Forever and Then It Was No More, talks about Vinyi, which is a way of saying outside being on on the outside. I don't know if there's English words that that are going to work here well enough than just saying the Soviet word in Vinyi. Um, being in a context while remaining oblivious to it. That's how Yurchak defines it. So do we say fringe? Do we say somebody's like underground, somebody's goth? Somebody, these things all have other meanings that I don't want to, to give. Um, but what the main thing is someone who's simultaneously part of the system and not yet following all of its parameters. As in a New Yorker article about a filmmaker, Dovlatov, who was an artist based in Leningrad, who never was a refusenik or a dissident or anything like that. He didn't talk about the Soviet state or anything like that, but he produced art and it wasn't approved art. It was said of him, he did not struggle with the regime. He simply did not notice it. He was not really aware of existence. And we see things in such black and white terms. We got into this a little bit in episode four, where Moscow does not believe in tears about some of these things where you could be kind of you know, not totally compliant with the regime, but not being difficult either. And I think it is 
demonstrative, as we look at things in this series, what we can learn from the relatively failed experiment of the Soviet Union, what things are like when you have a system of totalitarianism as opposed to a free and open place where people can speak. And that speaking becomes very narrow and defined and what it is to be an artist becomes defined. And you're going to see that it's not just black and white, like people resisting out there with protest signs is somewhat suicidal in a situation like this. Yet that did exist in Russia. There are people constantly setting themselves on fire in Red Square during the time of the Soviet Union, and we would hear very little about it. But again, there's a whole group of people who are never on human rights watches or anything like that, but just resisted in their own way. Another concept that Yurchak talks about that I did not get into, the concept of the boiler room rebellion, if you will, Kachgarka, or the Dvornik, or the Storos, the boiler room worker, the street sweeper, the night watchman, people who took jobs that really only off allowed that, that didn't pay very much, maybe a minimal 70 rubles a week, not much, just survive on maybe some canned food and stuff, but yet allowed them to have more time. A street sweeper might only work two or three days a week. The boiler room attendant is going to sit there and watch the boiler room, which is mostly functioning and then fix whatever they need to when they do, allowing them lots of time for reading, for composing poetry, for thinking about what they're going to say at the next meeting at the cafe. And in Leningrad, they have these kind of bohemian cafes that are developing and people are just simply talking with each other. And it's something I found fascinating. I didn't get a chance to talk about enough in the cast. I didn't get a chance to talk about ways of saving money in the Soviet Union, saving apart from each salary. That was really difficult. Uh, One Russian says, I remember very often the family had to use the deferred money for other purposes, and it was impossible to save up just to have kind of a bundle of rubles in the house. A better method was the Rashroka, or the installment payment, a purchase in which the payment was broken into parts and paid for during a year with a contract between the store and the enterprise where the buyer worked, so some amount would be taken out of their pay. Our family used this often for purchase. When the repayment of the purchase was completed, it was a family feast, because now nothing was deducted from the salary. Another method was more interesting, and it was just called cash. And a group of colleagues would gather in a team, and and if there were 12 of them, Um, They might agree that over the course of the year, each of them would give to the group 10 rubles from their salary, say. And then each month, that would be given to someone in the group to determine the sequence of the receipt of the money that cast lots. So thus, each member of the group once a year received a large amount of money from the cash. My mother participated in these games. So, So, you know, just to be clear, it's not a lottery. Because it's just determining the sequence by lots. It's not a lottery. So you're going to get your money in one of those months. My mother participated in these games, and when it was her turn to get the money, it was a feast. (laughs) 
We talked about Tatiana Malkina. Now, she is the reporter from the New Gazette who, during the press conference on April 19th, comes up to Yanev with the camera on her. The camera's actually showing her face and asks, do you have any idea that you started a coup d'etat? And... Of course, that shocks them, and they deny it and everything like that. There's that moment. There's even, because of the the outfit that she was wearing, we talked about it was her birthday, and she planned to go out with friends, not knowing that this coup was happening and this press, she was even going to get into the press conference. And so um, the joke was that she was the girlfriend of democracy. The rest of the story is that when she goes home that night, her mother is deathly afraid, has her pack up her things in a bag and prepare to leave Moscow because she feels she's going to be arrested. And after talking to her mother, Malkina thinks that's a possibility too. And it shows you the fear, the real fear that people had on these days. We look back at it now as some kind of maybe joke. What happens to Malkina is that she does continue to be a reporter during that time. We were of another generation, she says. It was funny for us to imagine, possible for us to imagine, to live in this double-minded world, you know, like our parents. She works in the journalistic pool of President Yeltsin. She's a journalist and editor of big publications. She does get some fame for her actions that day, and she's in the pool of both uh, President Yeltsin and, for a short time, Vladimir Putin when he becomes president of Russia. Lives in America for a time and then continues working in Russia. Here's what she says about um, journalism. It was born at a bad time in Russia because right as journalism is being born, the web is also born. And so print journalism is out of favor. The biggest digital transition happened. Traditional media in principle began to change in the most dramatic way. And newborn Russian journalism, it seems to me, did not have the means to not only be born and try to get on its feet, but also to adapt to the rapidly changing world. And this is something that I see in many sources, not just Malkina, that Russian journalism starts out and it's really the hero with faces like hers and some of the others we quoted from, Albats and them, who are really well respected by Russian people. But because it quickly goes to uber-capitalism. Here's the, the description of another reporter. Every month I was getting telegrams that would categorically inform me that the cost of paper is going up by 200% this month. Or the cost of ink is going up by 100%. We had no time. I had to hustle unbelievably. Once we had no money to left to pay for our print run. So I went to the director of the printing plant and told him, take some of our shares. And he did so we could not pay for the print for the next eight months. And I was able to pay our journalists their salaries for some time. Papers struggle during this economic depression, so they're free to say what they want, but they can't afford to keep doing it. And in some cases, in many cases, what they do is start either directly selling their pages to interested people, usually businessmen and journalists, for kind of information advertisements or good articles, or since they can't pay their journalists all the time, they allow them to freelance. And who do they freelance for? Those same type of people, writing favorable articles for politicians. This means that very quickly, the image of the journalist and the image of the media in Russia quickly goes downhill. And so as someone like a Putin enters the stage, you hear commentary from people that the journalism profession is not 
ready to deal with that threat because they have their reputation is so soiled. Here's Malkina again about Putin. It's not that Vladimir Putin came to power and immediately pumped out all the air and everything became disgusting and so on. In fact, he was then young, energetic, extremely charming. I have not seen him for a long time, but believe me, only a fool would deny his charisma in personal communication. He said the right things. He certainly demonstrated commitment to, pardon the expression, liberal values. And by the way, in the economy, he continues to demonstrate it. He, it, I quoted a little bit from, and I highly recommend the Red Web, the struggle between Russia's digital dictators and the new online revolutionaries by Andre Soldatov and Irina Borgon. I talked about how they were some of the first to set up RELCOM to set up the first internet. And it just happens that it really takes force and has, they have to have established a network right at the time that the coup happens. So they're able to put it in action that day. And it's really under the noses of both the KGB and the Russian security services. And it does take some time for the Russian security services after that to catch up with this new media. But Putin, when he comes to power, certainly starts to do this. And they tell that story much better than I could in the Red Web. And it's one of the books that I, of the many, that I recommend. I really think for understanding Russia today, uh, I recommend it. But there is a story that they tell related to what Malkin is talking about. And they're not there, but this is among their blogger friends that Putin starts seeing that bloggers are having a lot of influence. And they try various methods. But one of the things is he has a meeting at the Kremlin and he, 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 with some of the key bloggers, and he puts forth this, uh, or, or he allows one of his deputies to put forth a policy that they're going to regulate what's put on blogs. And then in front of everyone, kind of magnanimously, Putin, uh, after bloggers complain, Putin says, yes, you're right. This is not a very good idea. And it's seen by many as this is good. This is a guy with liberal values. But later steps would indicate that this is a great area of concern for the Kremlin, especially as the new blogs and online sources are able to manipulate opinion. Putin's a TV guy. He gets to power on TV. He sees what happens in 1991. It's the fact that Yeltsin's on TV that so many see as the important part of the coup not succeeding. And then you get to 1993, and it's a similar battle for that TV tower. Putin manipulates TV, very important in his becoming president of Russia. TV starts to be seen less and less by the new generation who's following internet and eventually social media and their phones. And the Red Web traces that over time, his various tactics, some by, say, um, forceful methods, kicking certain bloggers off the air, finding new taxes that they suddenly have to pay, bribing them, coming up with uh, their own pro-government bloggers to counter what they're saying. All of these techniques are detailed, you know, in that book and the whole struggle are detailed in that book. Uh, I also want to say that Soldatov and Borogan as well as Yevgenia Albets, who I quoted extensively from, are all now Solotov and, and Borogon are in London, and Albets is in the United States. 
as a result of the new restrictions put on journalists because of the war in Ukraine. And that is real news because you take someone like Alba, she was covering the KGB at a time when it was now, it was during perestroika, but still a bit dangerous to do with some of the accusations that she was making. You see comments again and again and again from all sorts of people about how fast the coup was resolved. I even saw in Quora, a writer who was at the barricades, say, how could this have been resolved so quickly? And that's a great question to ask. What happened? Why did the, why did the coup not succeed? Uh, they had the media, they had the government for a little bit there. They had Gorbachev safely locked away. And, you know, let's go through all the standard explanations. And I think they're, I think like in a lot of things, it's multivariate and there's m- meaning that there is multiple reasons why the coup did not succeed. They didn't, they controlled the media, but not well enough. They didn't lock it down enough. They did not isolate and separate the reformers in the country, starting with Yeltsin. Um, my feeling is that had Yeltsin been kept at his dacha and deprived of his communications, just like Gorbachev was, that they would not have been able to succeed. Uh, there's also the idea that there wasn't as it, although that they were they were counting on a kind of conservative counter revolution that there weren't enough boots on the ground to happen. The show of force was greater. Still, there's counter arguments to that. We can say that the show of force of democracy at the stand at the Russian White House was greater than they expected, but that's not what Kryuchkov says to the investigator. You know. And I, you know, to the extent we can believe him, that's not what he says. He says, actually, it wasn't that there were very few strikes. Um, he blames it mostly on the mistakes they made, which if he had his druthers and he didn't have to worry about the other people in the Gang of Eight, he would have corrected in the coming days as they sieged the White House instead of stormed it. You know, if you go with the longer term Kryuchkov plan, that, that coup very well still could have succeeded. If Yazov doesn't run to Gorbachev first. But, and that leads to the other explanation, this is Stephen Kotkin and others, that the second echelon of people just didn't believe this gang of eight anymore. It has to do with the press conference being a failure, the fact that Krajichkov isn't even there for the press conference and others are not even there for that press conference, that it's such a terrific failure that these guys are a bunch of nincompoops and the second echelon halted. In other words, all the deputies, all the people in the commands that actually had to do the work just said, I'm not going with these bozos. That's a very common explanation. Not only is it because they don't think these guys are going to succeed and then they're going to be in trouble in a society that doesn't look kindly on people who don't follow the rules, but also the second echelon way you may have wanted the first echelon's job. That deputy defense minister wants the defense minister's job, and you replicate that uh, into the KGB, into the interior department, into the police, and all sorts of other things. Okay. Related to this, very important, is that after 1989, you start to have dual authorities with teeth. So the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, is a title that has meaning now. 
This is an elected position. It's also the authority running the state government that has a separate power structure from the federal, if you will, USSR. And so if Yeltsin was simply a protester, even if he had charisma and he was a leader and he had people at the White House and all of that, it would have been meaningless if he didn't have power that made officials and particularly military take a step back and think about their actions before they moved. And so the you had a situation when you look at the protests in August 19th and 20th, 1991, those are people coming out not just to protest against the state, but also to defend the state. And that provided mechanisms that, that weren't possible, um, all of these things. But I think you have to look at something else. Look at Tiananmen Square. That example is available to the Gang of Eight. It's available to Kryuchchov, Yanayev, Pavlov, and the others. Because it happened two years before. Mikhail Gorbachev actually is the driver of the Tiananmen Square event. This may not be known well, but it's Gorbachev's visit to China that starts student protests, which are pretty intense, and start shutting the city down. Then some of their parents and other middle-class workers start coming out. Tanks are called. They stand in front of the tanks. There's a standoff. The media, the Western media, is sent away. I remember watching it on CNN, and I remember the moment well. CNN covered itself being shut off and kicked out of China. And when the cameras were off, apparently of a few journalist sources, there was a massacre. How many were killed? We don't even know. It's banned to talk about in China, to talk about those events. In any case, what had happened is... You had some of the military in China, particularly those around Beijing, that did some of the same things you saw in Moscow. They refused to fire on their own people. And the Communist Party met and and made a decision that this is either life or death for the system that we have in China. We're only going to have to crack down. And the USSR, they could not make the same decision. So there is some element here uh, as to why the coup didn't succeed that People running it did not want that level of bloodshed. Could have taken the Russian White House. Could have cleared the square in St. Petersburg. It would have caused casualties. Probably a lot more than the 14 killed in Lithuania earlier in the year. They simply weren't to do that. So, you know, that's kind of supportive more of your Joseph Weisberg theories. Like, you know, um, kind of your your sting. Do the Russians love their children too? Kind of, you know, they're people. They're not the kind of abstract animals that were presented in American media if you grew up in the time. I also believe that the Gang of Eight wanted to be popular, not popular abstractly, but they wanted to know that they were doing something that the people would rise up and support because Perestroika was failing so badly and the economy was so bad. And I don't think they had time enough to put that together. The deliveries of bread that were planned to fill Moscow's store shelves just didn't arrive at the, the right time. And all of this comes together. But the explanation that you commonly hear that it's because of the resistance, I think it's just one factor. Yevgenia Albitz has a great quote that while 50,000 people were at the Russian White House at the night of the 20th going into the 21st, another 9 million Muscovites were laying their head on pillows. Is it really because of that, that the, the coup failed? 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Uh, we have included that quote from the guy that was, you know, in the Ural Mountains. that said, we don't care about the people at the Russian White House here. I'm glad, you know, they're phony patriots, that kind of thing. So... I just think, um, you, you, is there one explanation? No. But all of these things have a little bit of truth. But because it's so easy, it leads to a lot of, you might say, conspiracy theories about was Mikhail Gorbachev really involved? A couple of folks like Ligachev and Lubyenkov, um, the uh, Speaker of the Supreme Soviet we talked about, it was kind of the double-crosser, and Pavlov in years following after he's released – will fuel the, the speculation that Gorbachev actually knew all about this coup and just let it happen. There's even stories that, well, he said he didn't have any communications, but there are some people who received phone calls from him, and um, there's conflicting stories there. And, okay, he, he wasn't prevented from leaving. He was prevented from flying. He wasn't prevented from leaving. He had his bodyguard. What kind of a coup would they leave a 36-person bodyguard with him? You know, again, a lot of discussion about that. I tend to believe, for the most part, Gorbachev's account that he was not permitted to leave and all of that, that he wasn't free to act and his communications were down and he had no knowledge of this coup. I can get behind, though, any theory about Gorbachev's political skill and his ability to read the, the room, you know, um, some of the coup potters later would say things like, well, presidents don't just tell you always what you're supposed to do. But he gave serious hints. You know, Kryuchkov's point is there were serious hints just laying there that he wanted something done in his name. We're going to do, in effect, the dirty work for him. 
That's the way KGB had always acted for USSR politicians. That's a little more believable for me that while he didn't expect everything that happened, it goes against the account that he stuck with until his death just last year as I'm recording it. So I don't want to engage too far in the in the conspiracy theory of everything, but just to say, if you take his actions, for instance, in Lithuania, where he's sort of away, and it appears kind of allowed the military to do something, and then later claim, like, I had nothing to do with this, same thing in Georgia, it fits into that pattern. Except in those instances, though, they did not physically cut off Gorbachev. I didn't get the chance to mention the fellow who on a message board when he heard Russians describing the Soviet Union said, oh, that's like the Navy in the USA. You know, trade cigarettes for everything you need. I worked in the print shop on a U.S. Navy ship. We often exchanged services with other compartments after regular hours. If a guy needed some training documents because he forgot to ask enough for the deadline and he had to hand out those documents tomorrow, he'd make us a couple pizzas. That was quite a treasure on a big ship. We printed a thousand pages and cut and bound them for them. Knowing people came with privilege on a Navy ship, and people were hard to get to know. You had to kiss some butt quite a bit. We saved a ton of money while we were underway because money was useless. It was barter or wait in line for everything. When I was out in the Persian Gulf, all the water I consumed during the eight-hour hump was sweat out of my body. It was 120 degrees. But here's the solution. If you were friends with the... Boatswain mates who organized and oversaw the operation like superintendents. Then they called your name, and you could request a spot in line in one of the freezers, where you could remain as cool as Jack Nicholson in his movie Easy Rider, and retain all of those fluids in your muscles and blood. Now, we spent a lot of time making a phone call every two weeks that cost $4 a minute when the lines weren't down. We invented games to play in our compartments throwing balls of paper at each other, to which another Russian said, yes, parallels are clearly visible for a good reason, too. The Soviet Union was a country militarized to the extreme, so it is no big wonder that life there was similar to serving in a military. Lithuania has escalated beyond threats to the use of force. Soviet tanks and troops moved into Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, and took over two important locations. I hinted a bit, but I didn't get a chance to go into detail enough about the events of January in Lithuania, but also in Latvia. The Lithuanian government, which had already declared that it was independent, it was going to operate independently from the Soviet Union. Now, to be clear, there's a little bit of a weak distinction in that they're not declaring a new nation, but they're declaring autonomy. And what the Soviet Union does in response to this is really institute a propaganda and economic war against the Baltic state and force them into a series of actions where the Lithuanian government now has to raise prices as high as 100%. And now also turning Russian nationals against Lithuanian nationals and other groups. Workers at factories in Vilnius are starting to protest all of these price hikes. The Soviet government, according to Human Rights Watch, had mounted a quiet propaganda campaign designed to actually promote ethnic strike. Oh, they're Poles. They're Lithuanians. They're not Russians. And it works some, but there is still a lot of opposition and unified opposition in Lithuania. The kind of thing that we're seeing in Ukraine now where a lot of Russian-speaking 
Ukrainians or those with a Russian background are, are on the side of the Ukraine government. Similar there. And there's opposition to the Soviet system and really a feeling that we are going to break the Soviet state and it's going to happen here first in the Baltic states. At Lithuania's National Guard headquarters, tanks and armored cars quickly surrounded the building. Again, gunfire. When we asked a Soviet tank commander why they had attacked, he said, we needed to. So the events of August 19th, 1991, many people refer to this as a dress rehearsal. Beginning of January, the president, Landsbergis, calls upon independent supporters to gather around and protect the main government, the infrastructure buildings, and the TV station. The TV is the center of mobilization. It's January 8th and 9th that special Soviet military units are flown to Lithuania, including Alpha Group and including paratroops of the 76 Guards Air Assault Division. On the 10th of January, Gorbachev addresses the Supreme Council, demanding a restoration of the Constitution of the USSR in Lithuania, the revocation of all anti-constitutional laws. So he is involved in this rhetorically, regardless of what he's going to say about his role in the actions after that. Lithuanians also go on their own TV. Soviet troops attack and forcibly take the, tr- the television station, killing 14 people. When the Lithuanian president tries to contact Gorbachev, saying, call these dogs off. What are you doing? Why are you crushing democracy? He is told that Gorbachev has gone to bed and could not be disturbed. One sobbing woman feared for her daughter trapped inside the printing house. It's Gorbachev, she told us. Now you see the man you gave the Nobel Prize to. Today in the TV tower in Lithuania, and it used to be outside of it where the events occurred, there is a monument of 14 crosses, actually 13 crosses, because 13 Lithuanians were killed and one Soviet soldier was shot in friendly fire. A seamstress, three college students, high school student, a factory worker, shopman, a locksmith, metal worker, were all among those killed. Now, following the initial attacks, huge crowds now show up in Vilnius. And you get 20,000 during the night and 50,000 in the morning. The same type of crowds that you're going to see in Moscow gathering around the Supreme Council building, just in the way they gather around the Russian White House. So really, when you look at this, this is training for what to do. Over in Riga, in Latvia, they're going to build barricades so that tanks can't get in. After the tens of thousands of people are protecting the government buildings in Lithuania, the Soviet troops retreat. And Gorbachev claims, Kryuchkov claims, nobody ordered this. The troops just magically appeared. There's also a propaganda film that is that is made, and um, there they call the defenders of Lithuanians, of uh, the Lithuanian government, fascists and Nazis, and um, they're able to produce it awfully quickly. This propaganda tape, even though materials are hard to come by in the Soviet Union. What happens after that? The Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian governments maintain their autonomy and independence, their declaration of that, up until the events in Moscow and Leningrad in in August 19th and 20th, 1991. During this time, a significant event happens when Iceland declares that it will actually recognize Lithuania. This is well before the United States does anything like this. 
and um, is the first foreign country to recognize their independence. So I don't think we got a chance to talk enough about really everyone says it's the dress rehearsal. For the press in the Soviet Union, Interfax, the only newswire service not controlled by the government or the Communist Party, was kicked out of its offices in Moscow. Interfax is looking for new ones. And a popular television program has been canceled. It was called Viewpoint. It was a mixture of political satire and anti-government commentary. And I think the Moscow defenders learn from it. And when you even we talked about, there are people who were directly in Lithuania that were now in Moscow participating in the barricades in front of the Russian White House. Kyrgyzstan. We didn't get a chance to talk about Kyrgyzia, uh, now a country called Kyrgyzstan. So Kyrgyzia couldn't be farther from Moscow. Yet it plays a small role that we didn't get a chance to discuss. It's a republic that's smaller than South Dakota, about 200 square miles. About 5.5 million people live there now. Mostly it's mountains. It's dominated by a range of mountains called the Tian Shan, known in Chinese as the Celestial Mountains. So this is a country that borders China on one of its sides. Its president, Akayev, condemns the coup immediately. He's a product of the democratic movement of Kyrgyzia. He installed committed Democrats who were very appreciative and supportive of Yeltsin in his key cabinet positions in the Republic. There were still old guard communists in the country and still many Russians speaking in the country that he had to deal with. So the state emergency committee does attempt to relieve him of his presidency, but it's not successful. They don't get around to it and they don't have force to make that happen. Kyrgyzstan is going to declare its independence right after the coup event, and they're going to be part of the new CIS and one of the factors in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, because they've got no interest now in continuing with Moscow after the coup. It's 1982, and a car full of Americans rides down a Moscow street. They're very well-dressed. Two men and presumably their wives and one of them has a birthday cake. One of the wives is carrying a birthday cake on her lap. It's obvious that they are leaving for a party. Or so they want the Soviets to think, because the Soviets are constantly watching the U.S. Embassy building, every car that comes in and car that comes out. They want them to think this is just a birthday party that they've arranged in an apartment in Moscow. It's the seventh directorate of the KGB that handles surveillance, and Mos Moscow is to... Um, use the parlance of CIA agent Tony Mendez in his excellent book, Moscow Rules. Moscow is categorized as a denied area, a country with such strict internal security that foreign intelligence agents dare not contact informants in person. That means it was crawling with KGB agents watching the moves of foreigners. There's a small CIA station in the U.S. Embassy, and they have a lot of trouble operating because... They're constantly being watched. And yet they have people that want to give them things, certain like at this time in the 1980s, for instance, certain surface-to-air missiles that the Soviets had. The U.S. wanted information on it. And there were people in the Soviet Union willing to compromise because mostly, mostly they didn't have to be paid to cooperate. CIA was mostly ideological. They didn't think the system was working anymore. They needed a change or they wanted peace. And the best way to get peace is to give a leg up to the Americans. So yeah, we're going to, I'm going to take a little picture with a little camera 
and show you these surface-to-air missiles. I mean, some of the intelligence of this unit and the excellent work that Tony Mendez, his wife Jonah Mendez, who also is a co-author of the book Moscow Rules, did enabled the U.S. Air Force to change some of the design of planes and to save money that they were spending on certain models and divert it to others that would be resistant to these surface-to-air missiles. To make that happen, you're going to have to talk to sources, or you're going to have to do a drop-off where you drop off, say, a run note, and the person knows to pick it up there. Either way, if you're in a total tail situation where anything coming out of the U.S. Embassy where the CIA station is, is going to be watched, you can't do either. You might as well meet with people because it's just as dangerous as leaving mail for them and then having those KGB agents see you leave the embassy, see you put the envelope into a spot in a park, say, and then see the person, oh, just happens to be a person from one of our nuclear institutes grabbing the the envelope. So what do you do? You have to dodge that surveillance. And so they do this. At a certain point, the car that the four Americans are driving in stops. And it does a few evasive maneuvers to lose the few cars behind them who are following at a bit of a distance. They don't want to be too tight to make it obvious. They lose them for anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds. That's all they need. And then one of the CIA staff ensconced in the U.S. Embassy, leaps out of the car. And something else. The station chief's wife, she puts the cake on the passenger seat where the agent had been sitting, and voila, it inflates. And in his place now is an inflatable dummy. Anyone who's right next to it can see it's a dummy. The KGB tailed at a little bit of a distance, so all they could really see was the salute of the people in the car and their counting heads. C4, they still see four. Maybe for a second, did I just see three? No, it's four. And and they would use these deceptive games and then also disguises. So the agent that's now on the street, taking care to find a place where there was no one around, is already into his... Russian uniform. He's looking like an older man who could have been, you know, could have fallen down to the sidewalk and is now getting up. And the disguise is so good, he walks right past the surveillance cars as they drive and follow the main car. Uh, that was called Jib or Jack and Box. They even brought magicians in to find ways to just sort of lose their surveillance. Very good disguises. Jonah Mendez is a master of disguise. She once appeared at a White House meeting as a different staffer just to show President Bush, um, first President Bush, that this could be done. So I think a very important point to of, of that and of reading the Moscow Rules book, which I think is a great book to read if you want to learn about what we were doing this time period is that we were doing things too. You know, we had counter espionage. They talk a lot about what Russians are doing currently and, you know, are very suspicious, so rightly so. I mean, they spent their lives 
watching an embassy that was watching them, watching surveillance methods, watching a very heavy and intrusive secret police, uh, and watching a kind of hostile um, relationship between the embassy and host country. And for them to just sort of think, oh, you know, everyone's talking badly about Russia. They're not doing any tricks or things like that. No, I mean, they they see the actions of Russia currently as very aggressive and, and um, some good chapters on that. Throughout the Cold War, roughly from 1955 to 1988, the CIA and KGB faced off on every continent. Nowhere was this battle more acute than on the streets of Moscow. The embassy in Moscow had been repeatedly penetrated by Soviet intelligence, and they're talking about the 80s. According to officials, a 1985 advisory committee headed by Admiral Bobby Inman found that the embassy's cars carried electronic listening devices planted by Soviet agents. In a more serious breach, embassy typewriters, particularly IBM Selectric typewriters, were bugged with devices that could monitor what had been typed and transmit it to listening post. That's something, right? Each key, for years the Soviets were reading some of our most sensitive diplomatic correspondence, economic and political analyses, and other communications, said a 1986 report on counterintelligence by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. The truth is that our two countries have always had a tense relationship. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the consensus among experts was that Russia's ability to influence world events was finished. Their infrastructure was crumbling, their economy was in ruins, and their political leadership was in disarray. Yet somehow Russia has been able to claw its way back onto the world stage. America's clandestine services have never been more relevant to the security of our nation. For this reason, I think there are important lessons to be learned from the past. That is Tony Mendez, an American hero, a CIA agent in Moscow, unfortunately passed away after the publication of the Moscow Rules book published by Public Affairs. They actually sent this book to me. I was to interview um, him, and I, I just never got a chance uh, to interview then his, his wife, Jonah, uh, but I did read the book and enjoy it very much. You know, um, I'll, let, I'll let his statement speak for itself. I hope you enjoyed this extra notebook uh, episode. I hope you enjoyed the fall of USSR series. And look, if you um, can you recommend the podcast to someone else, that'd be great. If you can subscribe on iTunes, that would be great. Every subscription helps there. Can you tell someone about this podcast so they know? And if you want to support us financially, there is the Patreon. And also remember to take that listener survey. The instructions are on the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. That helps us to gain more advertisers, helps the show. I want to thank you for listening. <laughs>